Today's teaching comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul Tripp, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, says, imagine that you have an apple tree in your backyard, and this apple tree is failing to produce good apples. The only apples you get are dry or wrinkled, brown, kind of pulpy, just bad apples. And your wife says, hey, listen, um, if this apple tree is not producing good apples, why do we have it? Just cut it down. Just get rid of it. And, and you decide, no, I've got, I've got a better solution. So you um, go out and purchase, uh, you know, branch cutters, uh, an industrial-grade staple gun. Uh, you get your ladder. Uh, you go down to the market, and you get two bushels of nice, red, plump, juicy apples. And you get up on your ladder, and you pull off the bad apples, and you staple on these beautiful, red, delicious apples. You get done. Your wife comes home, and she looks and goes, wow, that's amazing. How did you do that? Now, clearly, uh, that tree is no different. That tree is still producing bad apples, and it will continue to produce bad apples. But that picture is oftentimes uh, how we view or look at spiritual growth. That if we see impatience in our lives, we get to fruit stapling. So we see impatience and go, I'm going to work really hard to be patient. Or if we see a lack of self-control in our lives, we get to fruit stapling. We say, you know what? New Year's is coming up. And that means New Year's resolutions. And at the top of my New Year's resolution is going to be self-control this year, right? We equate behavioral change to spiritual growth. Now, spiritual growth always involves behavioral change. But behavioral change 
does not always equate to spiritual growth because of what I've just described. Fruit stapling, behaviorism, moralism, just change your behavior. So the question is, and the question that Paul's answering here is how do you really grow spiritually? How do you truly and really grow? We're going to see first, it's in the battle. In verses 16 to 18, Paul describes this intense battle that's going on between the spirit and the flesh. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Really important to understand here that the the battle between spirit and flesh is happening at the desire level. At the desire level. And you know that every desire, every craving has an intended end or a completion to it, right? So if, if you're one night, if you are craving a big bowl of chocolate cookie dough ice cream, can you taste it? The end of that craving or the end of that desire is you sitting on the couch with a big bowl of ice cream consuming it, right? Look at verse 16. When it says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, that word gratify is the word for end or completion. So what Paul's saying is, if you walk by the Spirit, we'll get to that, you will not, the, 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 the desires of the flesh will not find completion. They will not get to their intended end. Now, what's the intended end or desire or completion of the flesh? James chapter one says it well, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So your flesh, which is that power in you that is opposed to God, desires to kill you, desires death. The flesh desires and finds completion in death The spirit brings life. So what we see here is there's a battle between life and death. And we see in verse 19, the works of the flesh, we see how this death or the completion being death works out. So for example, look at the works of the flesh uh, that's sorcery, right? That's sorcery or witchcraft. Now, that can include the contemporary occult, so it it can include black magic or Satan worship, But there's something else there. The word for sorcery or witchcraft in the Greek is pharmakeia. It's where we get the word pharmacy. And in the ancient world, in ancient witchcraft, witches would pull together and administer lethal poison to kill someone. So the the postmodern parallel of that ancient witchcraft would be euthanasia or abortion, doctor-assisted death. So we see death there. Uh, Look at sexual immorality, drunkenness, orgies, right? 
excessive drinking or excessive sexual immorality can lead to disease in the body, which can produce death, right? Or look at that middle section of the works of the flesh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. All of those represent the death of relationships, right? The death of community, ultimately the death of isolation. And so you see that as the the desires of the flesh find completion. The ultimate completion of the desires of the flesh is death. This is a battle between life and death. The flesh brings death. The spirit brings life. And what Paul is saying is that if you are in Christ, there is a war going on within you. There is an intense battle inside you going on between the spirit and the flesh. In verse 17, when it says they oppose each other, that's, that's soft language. It, it really means they're hostile. They're hostile towards each other. They don't just oppose each other. There's hostility in you between the spirit and your flesh. And ultimately, that is to, in verse 17, keep you from doing the things you want to do. What's this mean? If you choose evil, the spirit opposes you. If you choose good, the flesh hinders you. There's a constant battle going on. Now, you say, what does this have to do with spiritual growth? Matt brought it up in his introduction to the confession. Do your sins ever cause you to doubt your salvation? And I mean willful sins. I don't just mean mistakes here and there, but you know this situation. When you are facing the temptation to sin and you know before you, you've got a choice. It is choose Christ, choose good, or it is choose sin, choose evil. And you look at both and with great will, you choose sin. Does that ever happen to you? And at the end of that, falling into that temptation, willfully rejecting Christ, willfully choosing sin, do you ever think, am I really a Christian? Like, can this really happen in the heart of a believer? Every one of us has been at that place at some point. And if that's you, then verse 17 is a great source of encouragement. Because what Paul is describing here in verse 17, he's writing to the Galatian church. These are the Galatians who have put their faith in Christ. What he describes in verse 17 is the spiritual condition of the believer. That there is a battle going on inside of you and you will not be without sin until Christ returns because you will not be without the flesh. That there will be a battle going on inside of you and that should be deeply encouraging. The battle is not evidence that you're not in Christ. The battle is not evidence that you have lost your salvation or that you're not really a believer. The battle is evidence that there's a war going on inside you. And the only reason there's a war going on is because the Spirit 
has inhabited you and indwells you. If the spirit wasn't in you, there would be no battle. And so when you find yourself in that place, there's a deep source of encouragement that this is the battle that is raging inside me. Don't be alarmed by the battle. Don't be alarmed by failure in the battle. In fact, here's the truth. You're most aware of your sin when the spirit is most active in fighting against your flesh. So you're most aware of your failing. You're most aware of your sin when the spirit is actively fighting against your flesh. So don't be alarmed by the battle. Don't be alarmed by failure in the battle. You actually should be alarmed if there's no battle. If there's no battle going on, that is reason for alarm. Because if the spirit dwells in you, there will be war within. There will be war within. So number one, be encouraged by the battle. That is part of the process of growing spiritually. But second, realize you're not fighting a losing battle. Nor will this war last forever. Nor will it get to the end and the flesh and the spirit end in a stalemate. Now, how do we know that? Look at verse 18. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law or you're not under the law. What's Paul saying here? He's not just saying, um, this isn't an issue of, 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 of law. It's not an issue of, um, it's up for grabs. There's, no, there's, not a, there's a question of who's gonna win in the end. No, what he's saying here is that you're not under law anymore. The law has no power to kill or stop the desires of the flesh, right? And by law, we mean here, just quit it. Just stop. That, that's, that's law. Stop. Quit it, right? The, the law has no power to, to, to stop or kill the desires of the flesh. Paul's saying, but you're not under law. You're under grace, which is synonymous with led by the Spirit. You're under grace. The Spirit dwells in you. And the Spirit has power to kill and stop the desires of the flesh. Right? The Spirit has that power. And one day the Spirit's going to gain total victory and your flesh will torment you no more. But until you die or Jesus returns, the flesh is going to torment you. That battle will wage. But the Spirit's victorious. The Spirit is fighting against your flesh. The Spirit will, will gain total victory. That's for sure. So how do you grow spiritually? It's first in the battle. And rather being discouraged by the battle, being encouraged that that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is going to war with your flesh. Second, through crucifixion. So look, after listing the works of the flesh, Paul describes the fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Two incredibly important truths to understand about the fruit of the Spirit here. Number one, you'll notice that fruit is singular. It's not plural. It doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. 
like gifts of the Spirit, as if you can have some and not the other. Like, I've got the love fruit of the Spirit, but I surely don't have the patience fruit of the Spirit. All right, or I've got the self-control fruit of the Spirit, but boy, that kindness fruit of the Spirit, I don't, I don't have that fruit. That's how we talk with gifts, right? You say, I have the gift of mercy, but I don't have the gift of administration. Or you say, I've got the gift of leadership, right? Or, but I, I don't have the gift of teaching. Okay, we talk about the gifts that way, and that's right. You can have some gifts and not the others. But the fruit of the Spirit, fruit is singular. It's not nine different gems. It's nine facets of the same gem. Meaning that the fruit of the Spirit are naturally found together as one. Let me give you a couple examples of this. So take the, the fruit of love and patience. Can you really love somebody well, but be impatient with them? No, those go together. Or uh, uh, self-control and goodness. The word goodness there, it really means generosity. Can you really lack self-control in the area of spending money on yourself and be generous with your money towards others at the same time? No. Or take uh, joy and patience, right? Joy as a fruit of the Spirit, is contentment not attached to circumstances. So can you really lack joy, which means that your happiness is tied to circumstances, but be patient when patience is enduring through hard circumstances? Right? They, the fruit of the Spirit are naturally found together, unlike the gifts of the Spirit. That's number one. Second truth to understand about the fruit of the Spirit shows up at the end of verse 23. After he lists the, the, the nine virtues that make up the fruit of the Spirit, he says, against, against such things, there is no law. Against such things, there is no law. Now, what does Paul mean? He's not just simply saying that there's no law forbidding these fruit of the, the, these virtues that are part of the fruit of the Spirit. No, what he's saying is that when, when these uh, fruit are in view is completely outside the sphere of law. See, law can, um, can tell you about a conduct, a form of conduct or a behavior, but when it comes to love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest, those can't be legally enforced. Let me describe it this way. One commentator says it well. A vine does not produce grapes by act of parliament. They are the fruit of the vine's own life. So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand, not even God's, but it is the fruit of that divine nature which God gives as a result of what he has done in and by Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of God living in you by the Holy Spirit. It flows from the Holy Spirit. So when you don't see any of those virtues of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, the answer is not to say, and it's where I opened up, I'm being impatient. Be patient, just do it, be patient. 
You're being unkind. Just be kind. Be kind. Right? That, that is, that, that's the law. Paul's saying the fruit of the Spirit don't exist in that sphere. It, it flows from the Holy Spirit. It flows from the Holy Spirit, which naturally says then that if the fruit of the Spirit is not flowing from the Holy Spirit, then the flesh has done something to hinder it. Right? Has, some, has done something to hinder the flow. I mean, think about your garden hose. If you're out washing your car, or you're out with your hose watering a, a bush or a plant. If the water from the hose starts to trickle out, what do you do? Well, you don't go inside and get a bowl out of your kitchen and fill it with water and come out and water the plants with that or wash your car with that because there's no water coming out of the hose. What do you do? You go, what's well, kinked somewhere? The hose is kinked. The water's not flowing. Let me go find the kink and undo the kink. Growth is not saying, wow, I don't see patience so up. I just got to go find some patience. No, growth says, wow, I don't see patience in my life, which means that that's patience flows from the Holy Spirit that lives in me. So something, a desire of the flesh, a work of the flesh is hindering the flow of, the, of patience from the Holy Spirit. And so you begin to do work on what is hindering the flow of patience from the Holy Spirit or what is hindering self-control that flows from the Spirit or what is hindering kindness that flows from the Spirit. There's a work of the flesh. Right? My flesh is hindering that flow and that hindrance comes in the form of sin and idolatry. That's the works of the flesh. In other words, what is, if, if the sin is in patience, what is the sin beneath the sin? What's causing that that is hindering the flow of patience that would come out of the Holy Spirit that dwells in me? And so now you're back to the opening illustration, right? When you don't see good apples coming from the tree, what's the problem? Well, it's not staple gun and branch cutter and ladder and staple something good on. There's a problem in the root system of that tree, the root system, the life-giving root system of that tree is not producing good apples. And so when you see, right, fruit of the Spirit that is not evident in your life, the answer is there's something deep within my heart, a work of the flesh, sin and idolatry, that is keeping that fruit from flowing forth from the Holy Spirit. Example would be if, if it's a lack of self-control, with spending money on yourself. You know, if you've got a money problem, you, you don't repent of the money problem. You go below the surface. Why am I spending so much money? Is it because I'm seeking pleasure and comfort and not finding that in Jesus? Is it because I'm seeking a status and approval? And so I'm buying the car or the house or the clothing to get me in a certain social group and not finding my approval and status in Jesus? Or is it about power and control? I'm using my money to gain control of something because I can't get my hands around it rather than trusting that Jesus is in complete control. See, it's getting below the surface that there's something in your heart that is giving birth, giving birth to the money self-control problem or the patience problem. And so the answer is not just to do it. Let me just say it this way. You can't do the fruit of the Spirit. You can't. 
If you try to do the fruit of the Spirit, you are stapling fruit on a tree. You can't do love. You can't do kindness. You can't do patience. If you try to, that's called moralism, behaviorism. It won't last long. That's just altering your behavior, maybe changing a circumstance. That does not produce growth or change. So what is the answer? Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. A couple chapters earlier in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, we have been crucified with Christ. But here he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified. We're the ones here in view in chapter five of doing the crucifying. We're the executioners. We're the ones that are crucifying the flesh. We've crucified the flesh once when we come to faith in Christ, but that crucifying the flesh is an event that happens over and over. As that sin and that idolatry that we have nailed to the cross, whatever you struggle with, if you, you, you nail it to the cross, that's crucifying. We've died with Christ, we nail it to the cross, but what happens is over time, we take the nails out and we kind of pull that idolatry off the cross and we nurture it and we give it CPR and we give it life again. And then we have to nail it back and crucify it back on the cross, right? That's the, the language that Paul's using here. In Romans 6, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin. In Colossians 3, 5, he says, put to death. There it is, crucify. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So you see the, the, the lack of the fruit of the Spirit. You identify what's causing that. What's the idol? What's the sin that's causing it? And you take that and you nail it to the cross where it belongs. Right? You crucify it. Now, here's why this crucifixion language is so, I think, helpful in understanding how we grow. Right? And how we put to death our sin and our idolatry. Number one, and you can think about the, the crucifixion of Christ as we work through this. But crucifixion was a painful way to die. It was the most painful way for a human being to die. That's what Christ went through. But what we learn about crucifying the flesh is that it is painful to crucify your flesh. It is painful to nail your sin and idolatry to the cross. Why? Because it feels good. That's why you did it in the first place. Sin is pleasurable. That's why we struggle with it. And understand that to say no to sin is gonna be painful because we don't give up what feels good very easily, right? So it's a painful process, right? This process of growing spiritually and, and saying no to sin and idolatry. Second, crucifixion was a gradual way to die. Right? There were those that were crucified that would hang on a cross for days at a time before they would breathe their last. It was a slow, gradual death, and it was meant to be that way because it was meant to be painful and slow. In the same way, crucifying your flesh, sin and idolatry, turning from it, nailing it to the cross is a slow and painful process. It does not happen overnight and it will not completely happen until Jesus returns or you die. It is a slow, 
painful process when you're talking about eliminating sin. Now, now here's, this is so important. What happens when we forget this? What happens when we forget that, that eliminating sin is painful and it's a slow process? We get really impatient with ourselves and with others who are struggling. We get really impatient. Instead of compassion and patience, we move towards someone with frustration and impatience in their sin struggle. And we especially do this when someone else is struggling with a sin or an idol that we don't struggle with. So I'll give you an example. If you've got a friend or, or you've got someone you know that struggles with substance addiction and you don't struggle with substance addiction, you can grow impatient and frustrated with that person and say, just quit it. Just stop. Stop drinking. Stop doing the drugs. It's just not that hard. Just stop. And you may be saying that to them with a huge blind spot of your addiction to approval. You can't live without someone patting you on the back. They may be shooting up heroin. You're shooting up the same thing of, I need, I need the pat on the back. It's like a drug to me. And what if they turn around and said to you, hey, just get over it. It doesn't matter what they think about you. Just quit it. Stop. It's not a big deal. You see, when we don't understand that eliminating sin and crucifying the flesh is a long, slow, painful process, then we grow impatient with each other and we grow impatient with ourselves. And we start beating ourselves up. Last, painful way to die. It was a gradual way to die. But crucifixion was also final. The person that was on the cross was going to die. And the hope and the encouragement here is that when you are actively crucifying your flesh, it's not a losing battle. It's not a stalemate. Why? Because the reality is when Jesus died on the cross, he actually paid the full penalty for your sin and idolatry. He paid for it. It's not hanging over you. This business of crucifying the flesh and eliminating sin is not about earning your way to God or, or getting him to accept you. That's done. That's finished. Your sin has been removed. You're accepted by God. You're forgiven. The crucifying the flesh is about life versus death. And not death as in losing your salvation. I mean, functionally just living a life where sin is just having you for lunch versus experiencing the fruit of the Spirit and the life that the Spirit gives. So you're not fighting a losing battle, right? The Spirit will gain total victory. Your flesh has already received its mortal blow. And that's the hope that we give people that are struggling. So when it's painful and it's slow, we can be encouragers to one another to say, listen, this battle's not gonna go on forever. The Spirit has won. The Spirit will win. The Spirit will gain victory. There's hope. So how do you grow spiritually? In the battle, through crucifixion, and finally, by the Spirit. So if verse 24 is about the putting to death of sin, verse 25 is about the coming to life of the new self. Look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
Now, live and walk are in two different verb tenses. And I'm going to tell you the difference because this is incredibly important to understand what Paul's saying here. Live by the Spirit okay, is in what's called the indicative verb tense. That means that it's an objective, it's an objective fact that's already been accomplished. So when he says, if we live by the Spirit, he's saying, if you're in Christ, you are living by the Spirit. The Spirit is in you. You are living by the Spirit. The Spirit dwells within you. It's not a, it's not a well, L, if, if you live by the Spirit or if you choose not to, no, no. He's saying, if you're in Christ, you are living by the Spirit because the Spirit lives in you, period. Walk, walk by the Spirit, that's in the verb tense, that's an imperative. Now, that's one that's a command that you can do or can't do, right? So if you're in Christ, you are living by the Spirit because the Spirit's in you, but you can or cannot walk with Christ, the command he's giving. It's, it's Paul's way of saying this, become what you already are, right? Become what you already are. Walk by the Spirit because you already have the Spirit living in you, right? Walk consistent with the Spirit. Now, this walk by the Spirit the word here is actually a walk, is a military term. It's a military term that describes a soldier walking in formation in step, okay? So that's why it can get translated, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You think about a military soldier walking in formation and keeping in step in the march. He doesn't have to really know where he's going. The drill sergeant does. All he's doing is staying in formation and putting one foot in front of the other and keeping in step. That's the language that's used here of what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. Now, what does this mean? First, it means that spiritual growth comes in ordinary ways, not in exceptional experiences of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual growth comes in ordinary ways, Again, think of that imagery of the soldier just marching in step. Spiritual growth comes in the ordinary ways, rhythms of the means of grace, not exceptional experiences of the Holy Spirit. And that means that the means of grace, uh, the Word of God, both sitting under the teaching of it, reading it yourself, prayer, sacraments, Lord's Supper, baptism, fellowship, not living in isolation, all those are like steps. And if you keep the rhythm... That's keeping in step with the Spirit. True growth comes in ordinary ways, not some special, isolated, highly individualistic, miraculous work and experience of the Holy Spirit. Let me try to equate this to basketball for a second. And if you're not a sports fan and you're not a basketball fan, I think you'll understand what I'm getting at. There's people that bemoan the state of basketball today because we're, we're, we're long past the day where basketball was this team sport, pick and rolls, motion offense, just beautiful. Whoever's open takes the open shot. Now basketball has become this almost hero ball, right? Where you get a bunch of all-stars on a team and you just take turns doing one-on-ones. So you give the star the ball and everybody sits back and watches and sees what he does, right? It, we, we can turn Christianity into hero Christianity, which says, you know what? If you're really gonna grow, you have to have some ecstatic experience 
of the Holy Spirit. Or, or you have to have the mountaintop experience at the weekend retreat. Or you have to go on the mission trip over the summer. Those are not bad. But the Holy Spirit grows us in ordinary ways. The ordinary rhythms of the means of grace. And why is this important? Because if you don't understand this, you can begin to think, if I don't have a special experience of the Holy Spirit like that person had, then I must not be growing. And that's dangerous. And that's not the way. Yes, the Spirit works in, in some miraculous ways. And there's times in life where you have those moments. But the, the work of the Spirit is rhythmic and it's keeping in step. Second thing that flows out of verse 25 is this. The Holy Spirit's ordinary way of growing us is habit forming. Habit forming, again, it's, it's, it's keeping in step, right? Habit forming with the means of grace, not just what I've said, word and prayer and sacraments and fellowship, but also the subjective means of grace. Examining yourself, asking questions, sharing your heart with others, right? That's how the Spirit works. I love what J.I. Packer says about this. He says, holiness by habit forming is not self-sanctification by self-effort but is simply a matter of understanding the Spirit's method and then keeping in step with him. So instead of looking for the mountaintop experiences, Paul would say here, just keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And that's how the Spirit grows us. Let me try to tie this all together and wrap up with a story from my own life. So God tells us to Love our neighbor, right? That's a command. The fruit of the Spirit is love. You could argue that is, the, that is the, everything else falls underneath that, but we're called to love. The two greatest commandments are love God and love neighbor. I was doing a, a relatively okay job of loving a neighbor, a specific neighbor of mine. I was engaging. Uh, I was serving. I was building relationships. And there came a point at which my love for this neighbor began to wane. I grew impatient. I was, I, was, I was much more removed. And then we're sitting in our community group not too long ago. And we're studying through the section of the gospel-centered life on mission. And the whole point of the section was if you find yourself not loving your neighbor, the answer is not just to do it, right? Well, just do it. Staple the fruit on, go. Just change your behavior, go, love them. No, the, the question that was teed up and the reality was that if that fruit of the Spirit is not flowing towards neighbor, then the problem is your flesh, something is hindering that. And so the question we teed up, what idol is hindering the outward flow of the gospel to your neighbor? Or what is hindering the flow of love from the Spirit to your neighbor? And we're, and we're moving around and people are sharing. And then I had this aha moment. Absolute aha moment. I realized that my love for my neighbor began to wane after a conversation that I had with him when he said he was an atheist and he had no interest in organized religion or in God. Also know that one of my biggest idols that I struggle with is success. 
So you can do the math there. After that conversation, the, the probability of success of seeing this person come to know Christ started to, <laughs> took a huge hit. And what I realized in that moment is that the fruit of the spirit of love was being hindered by my worship of success, my worship of a false God. And the bigger picture here is of how this all shook out. This didn't hit me at a weekend conference. This hit me in the weekly rhythm of our community group, of people gathering together around the word and talking and sharing and that the Holy Spirit worked. And that's how the Spirit works, around the normal rhythms of the Word and of fellowship to open our eyes to the things, to the flesh that is hindering the fruit of the Spirit from flowing. How do you grow spiritually? In the battle. The battle is not evidence that you've lost your salvation or that you're not in Christ. The battle is evidence that you are in Christ and the Spirit is actively going to war against your flesh. So be encouraged by that. You grow spiritually by crucifying the flesh. And that is when you see a, a lack of the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh are going, what is driving that at a deeper level? Taking that false God and putting that false God where he belongs, and that is on the cross. And you grow spiritually by keeping in step with the Spirit, that the Spirit works in ordinary ways, and the Spirit works through habit forming and the regular weekly, daily rhythms of grace, not by some special experience that you don't think you have, and therefore you don't think you're growing. Let's pray. Father, Would you forgive us for our self-made efforts at trying to eliminate sin and idolatry? Would you forgive us for our moralism, our behaviorism to say, I'm just going to change my behavior? Would you help us to dig deep and to see those idols that are down deep in the depth of our hearts that are continually producing sin and works of the flesh? that we could see those idols and, and be active with the Spirit's help to crucify them. Father, would you make us a people that see this process of crucifixion as a slow, painful process, that we would be compassionate and patient towards one another in our sin struggles, and would we be the ones that give hope to say this battle is not up for grabs, that Holy Spirit, you are and you will gain the total victory. Father, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, would this be a tangible taste of your spirit dwelling in us and going to battle for us? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.